Um, let's turn in our Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 64. Now remember, we're in the midst of a prayer. I guess it is a bit challenging to exposit somebody's prayer. One thing to exposit somebody's sermon, it's quite another thing to exposit or to explain somebody else's prayer. And that's what we're doing in this short series on the book of Isaiah. Okay, it begins in chapter 63, verse 15. That's where we began the prayer, and it continues to the end of chapter 64. So that's the length of this prayer from the prophet. But now let's stand together and we'll read chapter 64. Now hear the very word of God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence when you did awesome things for which we did not look. You came down. The mountains shook at your presence, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in all your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are all are your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praised you, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, O God, this is our prayer. We do cry out to you for a reviving as our brother prayed. But Father God, we pray by your spirit you would awaken us to these grand truths this morning. That we would see the grandness, the greatness of your mercies. The greatness of your salvation. And we would rejoice in you that this would be the response this morning from from your word and by your spirit's work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, we're talking about relationship here in this passage. This passage is very much relational, but it involves much more the the relationship of the church to God versus the individual to God. It is a both hand, isn't it, in the Christian life? And so if I was to ask you about your relationships, how are your relationships? Very fluid things that you know. Relationships are fluid. How is your relationship with your wife on a scale of 1 to 10 today as opposed to, say, three weeks ago or three years ago? You know, how is the relationship with your parents or relationship with your son or your daughter 
And you would probably say, well, it's about a four, moving towards a six. You know, it's been upwards of an eight, but now I'm back to a three. Isn't that the way relationships are? You know, how is your relationship with your brother right now? Or your sister or your wife or husband? Yeah, where is it? It's so fluid. Relationships are so fluid. So we're very familiar with the fluidity, aren't we? And so let me ask you this. Is God a person? Or persons? Does he have personality? And the answer is yes, of course he does. To, to think of God as a computer program in the sky or you know, some inanimate thing or whatever, someone who is outside of relationship, is not to understand a word of Scripture. That, I mean, that you're not going to get the Bible if you think that God is in some way impersonal. God is intensely personal. He's not happy with the church in the Old Testament here in this passage, and that's what the prophet is telling us. He's not happy. Jesus is personality, not happy with certain churches in Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. So there is a problem with Laodicea. Philadelphia is doing better. So where is the relationship with, with God in my life or in our lives with our church or with our denominations? We are concerned about relationship. And, and, and that's, that's vital for us. We are the covenant people of God. What does that mean? We are the covenant people of God right here in this building. We're, we are in relationship with God, covenanted, sealed by the blood of Jesus. The, the nature of the covenant is written out in a, in, a, in, a, in a document. We refer to that document as the Bible. So we are in covenant with God, we ourselves even as Isaiah is speaking to the covenant of God, covenant people of God, and Jesus is speaking to the covenant of people of God in Ephesus, and his relationship with those churches are so important. The Spirit speaks to the churches. God is speaking to us, and he does so by his word and, and by his spirit. And that's because he's in relationship with us. Typically, relationships involve what? Communication. Isn't that obvious, right? When we get married, we have a course on communication, or we have some stuff on communication, because we find out that, especially as guys, we're all thumbs in communication. Women oftentimes better at this than we are, uh, but communication is a big part of relationship, and so God speaks to his churches. And children, as you know, in the Old Testament here with uh, Israel and Judah and the southern tribe, we find that they're just in bad relationship. This is a bad church. They're not doing well, and that is the context it's a church in decline. The church needs reviving. That's the substance of verses 5, 7, 9 through 12. And I'm not going to go through those verses right now because we already did that. We basically presented the case last week. And so I don't need to go over that one more time. But that's the context. That's the context of the prayer. That's why the prayer. But today I want to look at the core message of these verses, verses 4 through 12. And what we're going to look at is doctrine. That is the teaching that comes through these verses. And, and the teaching is what I would call God-centered. We talk about God-centeredness, a very important part of our reforming agenda. And the reason why you know, we want to bring a reformation or reforming agenda into the, the present situation is why? Because, well, we need reformation. Uh, the Christian church needs reformation. Our nations need reformation. Why? Because we're so man-centered. We, we, we address the man-centeredness with a God-centered message. And that's what we get throughout Scripture. We certainly get it in this passage. 
And we want to revive this God-centeredness, a God-centered view of truth, epistemology, metaphysics, that's reality, ethics, uh, right and wrong. And that plays itself out in worship and life. Am I God-centered? Are you God-centered? It's a Romans eleven thirty-six outlook. For of him, through him, to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. That puts God right in the center. It was interesting. That was my favorite verse when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And you know, when, when someone says, I want you to write your favorite verse in my Bible, you know, I'll always put Romans eleven thirty six and sign it or whatever. It's always Romans eleven thirty six for me. But the, it's, it's interesting that the first time that I read the verse, it's not as if immediately I've conformed every thought and every word in line with that God-centered viewpoint. Uh, that is not necessarily the way it works with us. It doesn't mean that the first message you heard, the first time that we went through Behold Your God series, it was all fixed. Uh, we're done. We're God-centered now. Praise God. We got the series. We're all God-centered as a congregation. We've got it. We're reformed. We, we understand the God-centeredness of God's Word and how it applies to every area of life. That doesn't happen automatically to us. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning I want to get back to the basic message, these doctrines. This is back to the drawing board, and I do say that I, I appreciate it, and I I want to understand it better. I want to see the various facets of this message. Knowledge is an interesting thing. Knowledge must take shape over time in our minds. There are all these different levels of comprehension, varying levels of relevance, varying levels of application of this knowledge to our lives. And what I find is the more I come back to it, the more it takes shape. And I find obvious and relevant applications uh, in my own life, and I'm sure you will as well. So let's look at these doctrines in Scripture today, first of which comes in verses 5 and 6. This is the first doctrine that is presented here in this prayer. It's the doctrine of total depravity. So children, the plain language is given to us here. We need to be saved. And when you were born, children, this is the first line in your notes, you were a sinner. We were all sinners. And we were under the control of sin. Listen to what it says in the passage. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue. And we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Which means that sin has a control like a wind in our life. It just the, the leaf has no real ability to fight the, 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 the force of the wind. And so sin has such a control of us that we are incapable, we're unable to go any different way but the way that sin is going to take us. So here we find ourselves under the control of sin. And it's presented here as, well, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew word is literally sanitary claws, with which women are familiar. It's, it's the filthy, contaminated sanitary claws. That's, that's the word here. So our righteousnesses, the thing that we think to be the best thing about us, is, is nothing but the most contaminated and horrible thing. Most of the time, people don't want to be covering themselves 
with contaminated claws. You know, I got to dress yourself in contaminated, disease-ridden, blood-covered, stinking garments used to wrap a dead person on a battlefield for the last two weeks. We don't grab that coat and put it on ourselves. And the reason for that is because when we put clothes on ourselves, we expect these clothes to be clean. Part of the reason why we wash our clothes, people clean out sewers and, you know, people that deal with dead bodies and doctors that are operating on, on people and blood is all over them, they sterilize their garments, they, they wash them, they usually don't use them over and over again, is what I understand, except maybe a hospital in Africa, but most everywhere else, you know, if you're going to contaminate your garments with blood and such and all this terrible disease, my guess is you're going to want to wash those garments and you just don't want that, that, that stuff to contaminate yourself or anybody else. And this is what our righteousnesses are described in this passage. Even our righteousnesses are contaminated. And as, as we clothe ourselves in them, we will contaminate ourselves even further and contaminate everybody else as well. So the point is that whatever we perceive to be our very best deeds, the best things we do, the most righteous actions or most selfless and generous works are nothing but filthy rags. So the Boy Scout that's taking the little old lady across the road, the liberal who's out saving the bald eagles or whoever it is, there's always the self-oriented motivations uh, to, to win a little bit of credit for yourself or there's a bit of autonomy or a law to one's own self. Uh, we've legislated our own laws. We aren't submitting to the laws of God. We're not realizing God to be the ultimate lawgiver and loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength such that we would obey God. And so our, our righteousnesses, even our very best deeds, are nothing but filthy rags in God's sight. Verse 7 says, there is none that calls on your name. Romans 3 actually refers to something similar. He says, there's none righteous, no, not one. This is the Apostle Paul. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They've uh, together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Now, it's not to say that we are implementing every evil motive to the ultimate degree but it means that every one of our actions are contaminated. All of our righteousnesses are contaminated and no more accepted by God than any other of our righteousnesses or unrighteousnesses. Now, one of the things that I want to think about is, is this. I want to challenge you a bit with this question. How important is this doctrine? See, somebody said, well, I don't believe that doctrine. Now, we believe it. It's part of our church confession and such, but, uh, but how important it is that people should believe this if they're going to become Christians. So let's, let's, let's up the ante on this. Not that they should believe us and come to our church. No, I'm asking the question, how important it is for you and for me and for everybody else to believe this doctrine? In other words, can you be a Christian and not believe this doctrine? That's the question I pose with you right now. I believe they must believe the doctrine. That they, they must understand 
why they need to be saved. And the importance of faith and the work of God. But they won't receive those things unless they embrace the doctrine of total inability. There's always going to be a little bit of my choice, my contribution. The emphasis tends to come back to to what I did, the experience I had, and my actions taken. There is this impression that there was some ability on my part in my salvation. And that, brothers and sisters, I find to be a damnable heresy that will take people to hell. To believe that is to, to not be saved. So I, I believe it is, it's crucial to believe in, in your inability. You, you have to be humbled. You must be humbled to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I understand that this is a humbling doctrine to come face to face with our own inability to to rid ourselves of any self-righteousness and the tendency to think of ourselves as the source of real righteousness. We must be humbled first to be saved. We must come to the point at which we are utterly helpless and we realize that we are absolutely dependent upon a righteousness that does not arise within ourselves. In other words, we must look elsewhere, not within, but somewhere else, if we are to be saved. Okay, now let's move on to the second doctrine. Second doctrine is the doctrine of God and His work in your life and mine. That's verse 8. But now, the prophet says, O Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter and all we are, the work of your hand. We are the work, that's it. We, We are the consequence of your work, not my work plus your work, but your work and only your work. Now I want you to compare the potter and clay. Most of us, I think, have seen pottery in process and... Let me ask you this, what is the clay doing to bring about the end result? What does the clay do? What is the contribution of the clay? How much control does the clay have on the process? The analogy is important to us, very important. Does the potter ask for the clay's opinion on the matter? Like, Mr. Clay, what would you like to be, what do you feel like? You feel like this vessel or that vessel. What do you want to be today? How do you want to define yourself? Describe what you would like to become. Is that what the potter is saying to the clay? No, the clay does not form itself. At the point that the clay is the clay, the clay is entirely in the hand of the potter. And we are the work of God's hand. And this is what we mean by sovereignty. As much as the potter forms the clay, the potter is sovereign over the clay. So that's why this analogy is so helpful to us. Because if you want to know what sovereignty is, we speak of the sovereignty of God. Certainly as it applies to salvation. God determines the outcome of it. 
God is in control of it. It's all God's intention. It's God's causality that's bringing this to pass. And of course, Romans 9 is probably the most controversial passage in Scripture. I've heard many instances in which pastors in churches across America are preaching through the book of Romans, and they skip chapter 9. I've heard that a number of times. They say, well, it's just too controversial. But brothers and sisters, who are we to say? Speak, Lord, for that servant hears, right? Isn't that it? Anybody here afraid to approach Romans 9 this morning? Or are we willing to face it? Look at it in the eye. Say, God, what are you saying? What will you tell us? How will you teach us about these doctrines? No, we have no right to argue with the word of God. No, we must, we must receive what God's word tells us. And We read a portion of it earlier, but let me read just a few verses this morning. Who has resisted his will? Back up to verse 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Again, this is the, the, the clay. After you've, you know, Potter has done his work, the clay says, give me a break. Why did you make me like this? Well, what's the answer? What's the potter going to say? If clay speaks, what is the potter going to say? He's going to say, hey, I'm the potter, you're the clay. Shut up. Right? I mean, you have no right to speak. Who's in control here? Whose plan, whose purpose is coming about in the, in the production of this vessel? Certainly it is the potter's responsibility Does not the potter have power of the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Now, I want to take up the question, who has resisted his will? I realize this is maybe a little bit off of topic, but but that's the question presented here. And it typically is the question, why does he find fault for who has resisted his will? It has to do with whether or not God's at fault for the, the fact that this vessel is turning out as badly as Pharaoh turned out. Okay, that's the question. So the question, who has resisted his will? What we're referring to is Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart has already been hardened. We read in Exodus that Pharaoh first hardened his own heart, and then we read God hardened his heart. So we see that it's traded off throughout the book of Exodus as as Pharaoh is becoming the hardest heart on planet Earth, and he's setting the whole thing up for God's purpose to be accomplished at the Red Sea. Pharaoh's hardening his heart, and God steps in and hardens his heart. And Paul takes the word of God written by Moses at face value. He said, yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's no weaseling around the meaning of the word. God did this. Pharaoh was not resisting the will of God in the process. That's the point he makes here. Pharaoh was already a sinner, dead in trespasses and sins. He'd already hardened his own heart. Pharaoh was on board with the heart-hardening program. So who was resisting his will and the hardening of his heart? That's the question being asked by the Apostle Paul here. The if evil intentions of Pharaoh's heart was going to serve God's glory in the grand redemption of God's people at the Red Sea. So that's, that's the argument that is presented there in Romans 9. But, but here's the point. How do we all start out? We started out as a messed up piece of clay. Jacob, Esau, every one of us, we're not going to make anything out of ourselves. 
And we can't blame God for our depravity and our rebellion. Therefore, God comes to the clay, decides to make something out of Jacob, not so out of Esau. It's God's determination as to whether or not he's going to make something out of Jacob or Esau. Now, why does he find fault? Some say, well, that's just not fair. And who, who, who are you to ask the question or to state, make the statement that God's not fair in this? Would you like to step up to the microphone and explain to us who you are to determine what is fair and what is not fair for God? So again, who are you to make that determination? Moreover, we're just sinners here, guys. None of us are deserving of God's mercy. We are all dead in trespasses and sins. The wages of sin is always death for every one of us. So who here is, is deserving of the mercy and grace of God that he should show you mercy. The assumption made by those who say it's just not fair of God is that, whoa. I mean, who wouldn't show mercy? To me. Beautiful me. That's the assumption. But brothers and sisters, it wasn't beautiful you. That's the basic presupposition everybody's got wrong. They're so self-righteous. They're so sure of how beautiful, how wonderful they are before God. Who wouldn't choose them? Who wouldn't make a beautiful vessel of glory out of them? That's the assumption made. But that's because they trip up on the very first proposition, and that is we are all desperate sinners in need of the mercy of God. Before anything can happen in your life, in my life, God is going to have to act. The clay isn't going to make anything out of the clay. It's just not going to happen. The clay isn't going to form itself. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, has raised us up together. In heavenly places, by grace, we are saved. God must save us. Okay, let's wrap it up. So God does the work. But now, is the clay lifeless? No, the clay is sentient. The clay is alive. It has sense, perception, sensation, etc. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but now we're alive. And so what does this God-centeredness produce in us who are alive? The prayer describes the right outlook and the right disposition, the right relationship, the right response that we have towards God, and that's uh, five points. Children, we respond to God five ways. First, verse four. We respond to God by remain waiting upon Him. We rely upon Him. We wait on him. And we learn to wait. We grow accustomed to waiting. Waiting is our life. Verse 4, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. Bottom line, brothers and sisters, we need God to act. 
we need God to come down here and to act for us. We need God to do something. We need God to engage. And how do we get God to engage? We wait on Him. This is the number one description of faith in Scripture. And it's repeated over and over again throughout Scripture to wait upon God. So primary. So primary. You may have to wait 17 years in a communist prison. It's a long time. Richard Wormbrand was in that prison for such a long time. 48 years with a recurrent health problem. And some of us have those, you know. We wait a long time. But the point is to wait in faith. To be exercising faith. Growing faith in the process. This is attended by a confident expectation of God's goodness and greatness and readiness to respond to us. Yes, even if it is 17 years. Andrew Murray speaks of when you wait on the Lord, do so in the spirit of abounding hopefulness. Abounding hopefulness. Which means that the longer you wait, the more expectant you are. The longer you wait, the more your faith is exercised to to anticipate even greater things. Psalm 31, we're commended to strength and robustness and courage in our waiting. Psalm 31, verse 24, be strong and let your heart take courage, you who wait on the Lord. That is, be courageous. You say, I've been in this communist prison, I've been beaten for 13 years. Be courageous. Be hopeful. Be even more full of faith. Be even more excited, more anticipatory of what God is going to do in that communist prison. Faith may be feeble and faint, giving way to doubt. Will he ever come? Will God ever answer my prayers? How long will this trial, this temptation, this pain, this oppression, this spiritual attack last? God in His providence is going to extend that temptation an extra month or an extra six months or an extra two years or three years or whatever it will be. The tendency will be not to be courageous, but we're commended to courageous faith to hang in there. It's in the hanging in there that God is glorified. It's in the hanging in there that faith increases, that we have the opportunity to display courage in the face of these extreme circumstances, terrible storms, harrowing dangers, to wait for the most dramatic rescue you could ever imagine, but to wait with courage, with great expectations, with baited anticipations. But then there are periods of suffocating darkness where the darkness descends on Middle Earth, or perhaps just on your home, or perhaps it's upon the church, or whatever it may be, Isaiah eight seventeen, Isaiah says, I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Andrew Murray commenting on this, very helpful, listen to these words, where yes, there's a time of darkness, there's a time of, of spiritual malaise, and there's this time where there's just, it seems like it's just dead. It's, it's just that not, nothing's really happening, or 
There's no conversions or no baptisms in the church or whatever it may be. People are just barely alive. And he says, what do you do in times like these? Listen to what Andrew Murray says. Set yourself to wait on God in such a case. Instead of the tone of judgment and condemnation, of despondency and despair, set yourself to wait upon God. If others fail to do it, set yourself doubly to it. The deeper the darkness, the greater the need of appealing to the one only deliverer, the greater the self-confidence and self-righteousness around you that knows not that it is poor, wretched, and blind, the more urgent the call on you to be at your post, waiting on God. Isn't that good? I see light in some of your eyes going, yeah. That's why. Why why is so much light in your eyes this morning? Because you're anticipating. You're believing. You're expecting. Something big is going to happen. Eye has not seen, nor heard, nor has it entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who wait on him. Excitement, hope, anticipation. You say, well, it's all dark, but there's still a light in your eye. I can see it gleaming. You see, that's the point here. This is the time to wait. This is the time for faith, for courage. Look up, brothers and sisters. God is coming. Look to him. Wait upon him. Amen and amen. In Psalm 62, such a classic verse, my soul, wait only thou upon God. So here we develop a single-mindedness about our waiting. This piggybacks exactly on the exhortation. I couldn't believe it. It Happens almost every week, doesn't it, brother? We cannot split our affinities or allow for a backup plan just in case God doesn't show up. Again, it's why people will want to go to the alcohol and the drugs and the food and the entertainment as the backup plan. That's the backup plan. Let me tell you this, Richard Wormbrand didn't have a backup plan. It's one reason why so many people die and they commit suicide in these prisons. And, and you'll, you'll hear about that. Those lacking faith after 14 years have committed suicide. Because there is no drugs. There, there are no alcohol in the prisons. There's no food. There's no I, iPhone. There's no YouTube. Not in the communist prisons. So what do you do? If you're in a communist prison, you wait on God for 17 years. No backup plan. This waiting is an exercise of our minds, a broadening of the mind and increase the size of our minds to increase for the expectations of faith and hope. Beware of limiting God. Beware of not focusing in upon God and what he has done and what he's already accomplished. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But beware on minimizing God because that's where it all begins. I'll bet God's not that good. I'll bet God isn't that great. I'll bet God isn't really true to his promise here that eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared. Oh, I just don't think that's true. I mean, God can't be that good. Not when I'm suffering this much. Oh, no, brothers and sisters, it's, it's for us to focus upon God. Don't minimize him, please. Don't curtail his goodness. 
Don't limit him in what he can do. And that's the point of this verse. Stop limiting God. Remove all limits from your expectations and anticipations of what God will do. It's not possible to over-imagine what God will do for you. It's not possible to over-imagine it. God wants you to hope. God wants to get your hopes up. You say, I don't want my hopes to be dashed. You bet. And he wants your hopes to be far, far higher than they are right now. That's the point of this passage here. And I appreciate the lyrics of the modern poet. Tries to really get his hands around the sheer magnitude of what to expect and the grand expectations that we are to have in the Christian life. Listen to the modern poet. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Brothers and sisters, you've heard that how many times? Can you imagine? No, you can't. But expand the breadth of your imagination to consider the goodness of God, the greatness of God, how good God is to His purposes and what He will do for you and for me. That's the thrust of this poet. Let's move on to verse 5. You meet Him who rejoices and does righteousness and remembers you in your ways. What is this? Again, nurturing the relationship with God. How do you nurture a relationship with God? He wants us to be waiting expectantly, relying upon Him, yes. But then next, He wants us to remember. That's the second point. Remember what He's already done. And listen, if, if you expect God to do something amazing in the future, but you don't believe He's done anything amazing in the past, you're going to be in trouble. Okay? The greatest need is to remember. The greatest bane of the Old Testament church is they just forgot. They had spiritual amnesia so quickly. It's just extraordinary. Psalm 78, the children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows. They turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law. Why? Why? They forgot his works. That's it, they forgot. Spiritual amnesia, absent-mindedness, not coming back to the story again, saying amen to it, and dancing before Jesus today so you can dance even more before Jesus in heaven. So the great duty of the church is to just bring these things back to remembrance over and over. Preaching is reminding. Pretty much it. Now I gave the secret. Anybody can come up here and do this now. Right? <laughs> Just reminding everybody. But again, you know, it's because we so forget so quickly, right, brothers and sisters? I, I was thinking about Lazarus' resurrection. I think about this a lot. How many months did it go before they finally forgot about it? Or how many years? Like three years later, you think they were like, oh, yeah, Lazarus. He, you know, rose from the dead and stuff, but whatever. Lazarus, you left your shoes in the living room. Come get them. You know what I'm saying? It's just, we're distracted, aren't we? 
Like, Lazarus leaving his shoes in the living room is a bigger deal than the fact that he was resurrected from the dead three years ago. I'm just saying this is the kind of people we are. How many months before the story of Elijah's fire from heaven dissipated in the mind of the Jews? I mean, so many people. I mean, maybe a million people watching. The Red Sea forgotten in a week, although the harlot in Jericho remembered that, of course. Forty years later, she still says, I remember what... God, Jehovah, God did down there in Red Sea. The harlot in Jericho is remembering, and she's like, okay, guys, this, this, we're done. Jericho's over. Put a fork in it. It's done. They're coming. They're getting us. This whole thing's going to blow up. Why? Because Jehovah God delivered the Israelites 40 years ago from the Egyptians, and she's still on board with that. Of course, the Israelites had forgotten all about it within a week. So remember, brothers and sisters, Remember. Tell it to your children. That's Psalm 78. Just remember it. Tell them the story of what Jesus did on the cross with his resurrection on the throne. King of kings, Lord of lords. Go through the story all the way to heaven, all the way to the right hand of the Father. Just follow it through. Tell your children about it. And I I, I think the story's got to get bigger. I just think so. If it doesn't, if it gets more humdrum, what are we saying? not good. It just needs to be more magnificent and just louder praises in response to what he has done. I mean, if, if it's not, I think we just need to get ourselves and say, self, what's wrong with you? Why are you being distracted? Why does this story not mean anything to you anymore? Why doesn't it matter to you? What is it that's distracting or diverting or what's the problem with you, self? You know, ask yourself some of those questions because the goal is to remember. Okay, let's move on. Thirdly, we also cultivate the relationship with God by doing His righteous will. This again comes from verse 5. You who meet Him rejoices, does righteousness, remembers you in your ways. We do righteousness in that we're doing His righteous will. Now, the reason for this is rebellious sons. Now, God forbid we have a rebellious son, but picture a rebellious son. Maybe he's rebellious for a short time. Maybe he's the prodigal, runs away. Does that affect the relationship with his father? Does, you know, does a rebellion against the father, well, rebellion against the father is like destroying a relationship with the father. I mean, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's like ripping apart from a father and certainly not honoring the father, respecting the father, obeying the father. That's pretty much what a bad relationship looks like. And so if you want to create a bad relationship with God and grieve the Holy Spirit... And encourage the Holy Spirit to move away from you. Don't do what he wants you to do. Ignore what he tells you to do, you know. I mean, that's it. How would you offend your Lord? Here's one way to offend the Lord. No, Lord, I won't do that. No, Lord. Who's going to say, no, Lord? You know, two words that never go together, right? They don't go together. So what does he want us to do? What does he want you to do? To me, this is actually rather simple. You wake up on a Monday morning, what does God want you to do? Children, here's one. Obey your mother and father. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land. Husbands, love your wife, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Don't be grumpy. Don't, don't be argumentative, contentious. 
That's what Jesus wants you to do today, tomorrow. And if you don't do it, you'll have a bad relationship with God. Increasingly so. As far as you do it, you'll have a good relationship with God. And for all of us to love the brothers and sisters. Jesus tells all of us, I forgive you of your sins. Now forgive your brother. That's every day. That's every day. Yes, brother, I forgive you. I accept you. I receive you. Brother, you're forgiven. Jesus has forgiven you. Jesus has forgiven me. I walk in, in forgiveness and in the liberty of no condemnation, the liberty of love, and the liberty of being loved, and to be able to love others. And so therefore, I will forgive you, brother. I will forgive you, my sister. Do the thing that Jesus wants you to do. So these are the simple ways in which we cultivate a good relationship with God. Let's move on to the fourth. We rejoice in the Lord. Again, all this comes from verse 5. We rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I got to thinking about this. Some of us don't rejoice very much. or Sometimes we have some downtime. But, and I have the same issue. But let me, this question occurred to me as I was meditating on this passage. Why does Jesus want me to rejoice in the Lord? I mean, what is there to celebrate about the Lord? And what if I was to tell you, I'm really depressed about the Lord Jesus Christ. What would you tell me? We'd probably say, there's something wrong with you. And then what you say to me, you'd say, there's something wrong with you. Pastor, you'd probably be a little more respectful, but you're still going to say, there's something wrong with you. Why? You're going to say, why? What is it that depresses you about Jesus? What is my answer going to be? I'm really not depressed about Jesus. I'm depressed about me. Isn't that really the way most of us are? I mean, just be honest about it. We haven't thought enough about Jesus. We're just thinking about ourselves. I think that's it. It's not in my notes. I'm just kind of guessing here for a moment. So if there's more to it, then you can come back to me afterwards, okay? But I, I do believe it's, what is there depressing about Jesus? What is it to not rejoice about Jesus? That's just a simple question. What is it? Why is it that I cannot rejoice in the Lord? Well, let me give you three reasons why you need to rejoice. First, God tells you to rejoice. Now, last week you said, well, Pastor Swanson, last week you were talking about how important it is to mourn. Now you're telling me to rejoice. What's the deal? Jesus tells you to do both. That's the point. And, and the same Jesus that says, mourn, and you shall be comforted, is the one who says, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. It's a both and. The Lord is telling us to rejoice. God's word says, look what you've done now, weep. Okay, you understand it. You say, amen. Now look what Christ did. Now you understand what Christ did. Now rejoice. God's word commands you to rejoice. I love this passage from Nehemiah 8, where Nehemiah and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, they taught the people, and they said, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people had wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So what is he saying here? What he's saying here 
is that this is the Lord's day. This is the first day of the week. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You say, okay, this is the Lord's day. What does that mean? That means that this day belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a day of celebration. It is a day of recognizing God's resurrection power in Jesus Christ, overcoming death, overcoming sin, Satan. It is a day of victory. It is a day of celebration. It is the day to celebrate. I understand there's bad news. I understand there's bad things that have happened, etc. But there was a day in which we must rejoice. We must see Jesus as bigger than our own sin. Jesus as bigger than our problems. Jesus as bigger than the world's problems. Jesus is the reason to rejoice. And then finally, we rejoice in what he has done. To not rejoice in the victory of Jesus is to pretend that he didn't have the victory. You know, like, I'm sorry, Jesus, you're a loser. That's not a good thing to say. Would you all agree with me? You don't want to say that, do you? You don't want to say, Jesus, you're a loser, and I'm really depressed about it. No, no, Jesus won. Jesus is the victor. He has overcome. Now, I think rejoice because of the day. I said we're the Lord's day. But we also rejoice because of our proximate location. And I draw this from Psalm 66. There's all this rejoicing flowing in 66. Make a joyful shout to the Lord. All the earth, sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you, sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doings toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. Now here's the key phrase. There we will rejoice in him. It's critical to know where you are in time and space. You follow me? You had to understand your proximate location in order to respond in joyful shouts and praise to God. So ask yourself, this is, this is very important. Stop looking at yourself. We already said that. That's depressing. Where are you? Where are we in time and space? What's the v- viewpoint? What's the the sight that you see in front of you, where is it? Look, open your eyes and see what's going on. Dead bodies of Pharaoh's armies, the greatest army on planet Earth, bobbing up on the Red Sea, were safe forever and ever from Egypt. Proximate location. Okay, pinch yourself if you're not even awake. Pinch yourself. Okay, we're safe. Dead bodies, Pharaoh's armies, blobbing up on this side of the Red Sea, we're on the hallelujah side of the Red Sea. We, we have to put ourselves in that time and space, have the right viewpoint in mind, and say, this is the time to rejoice. There, we will rejoice in him. In that position. So in, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, this is what God wants of us. This is how you have a good relationship with God. Got to be a rejoicing church. A waiting church, a trusting church, a relying church, a remembering church, a church that does his righteous will. And then finally, verse 7, reaching out to him, 
stirring up ourselves to take hold on him. It's a positive read of verse 7. I'm just putting the positive turn on it. There is no one who calls on your name, stirs himself up to take hold of you. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. We stir up ourselves. Now, this is the answer. We, we said potter clay. We don't do anything for our regeneration, our life. But then there is a let go, let God theory on sanctification. This completely demolishes that doctrinal perspective. Demolishes. It's gone. It's gone. There's no let go, let God. This is people who are stirring themselves up. Stirring themselves up to lay hold on God, to prayer, to petition, to, to any and all spiritual exercise, to stir up to love and to good works, to get past sleepiness and petty prejudices, demonic pressures, to spiritual anemia, all the rest. Get past that. Break through it. Get out the stir rod. Stir each other up with a spiritual high fives and encouragements and prayer for each other and breaking through with that prayer of faith or whatever it is. And it takes effort. One of the things I've noticed recently is that loving my wife takes effort. It's amazing that I've learned this at 59 years of age. She's had this cough that went on for like six weeks and I'm getting really good at the honey lemon tea mixture thing. But I've noticed it takes effort to stir, you know, to go get the honey. And I I noticed, honey, it takes effort to get you the honey that you need. But my point is that a relationship takes effort. It takes effort to come to this church. It takes effort to do family worship. It takes effort to go to prayer meeting. It takes effort to push through whatever needs to be pushed through. Say, brother, you've been talking about what you need. I just need to raise my hands over you and pray over you right now. It takes effort, man. It takes spiritual pushing through, stirring one up to take hold on God and say, God, we need you now. God, come down. Help my brother. Help my sister here. Stirring one up to taking hold on God. That's what it is involved in this relationship. Let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we thank you, O God, that you are the potter and we are the clay. Thank you, O God, that you have mercy on us. Thank you, O God, that you are the one who raises the dead. Thank you, O God, that you open these scriptures up to us. We get it. Thank you, God, for you reaching out to us in relationship. And Father God, you've made us a vessel of honor and praise and glory and worship, and we want to be that. Father, we want to rise up in prayer and praise. Father, we want to serve you, do righteously, remember, rejoice. Father, all these things. Father, if we are just half awake, stir us up and then help us to stir ourselves up and help us to stir one another up to love and good works. Father God, we need this so badly all the time. But mostly that we are your vessels of honor. And it makes so much sense to do this, to love you, because you loved us, to honor you, because you have created us as vessels of honor for your honor. Oh God, this makes sense. Please come down, Holy Spirit, enliven us to it today in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, brothers and sisters, we come to the table. And those of you visiting, take a look at the back of our bulletin to see how we practice the Lord's table here at the church.
But I want to come back to the relationship because this is really ground zero for the relationship with Jesus. He has communion with us. That is the koinonia, the fellowship. This is the close communion we come with Jesus here at the table. So the five R's of relationship are relying upon Him, remembering Him, rejoicing in Him, doing His righteous will, and reaching out to Him. Remember, those were the five points to cultivate that close relationship that we want to have with Jesus. So let's rely on Jesus first. Let's look to Jesus. Let's wait upon Jesus here at the table. And let's, let's wait upon Jesus for His return. His consummation of a perfect reign of righteousness. And there are things that we sense need to happen still. There's little aches in our hearts concerning, say, relationships that aren't doing well right now or our own spiritual condition. There are little aches in your heart. I get it. It's a calling out to have something fixed. Well, Jesus is coming back and he's going to fix it all. Everything. Everything. We're waiting upon Jesus. He's the perfect king. He will bring all of us to consummation. Look to Jesus. And even as we come to the to table, reminds us of the crucifixion of Christ. Lifted up there. John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so much the Son of Man be lifted up. Same, same way. And even as those who are contaminated by sin, and, and not just by sin, but by this leprosy or these, these other problems that they had, they looked simply to that serpent raised up on that staff, and they were healed immediately. We are to look to Jesus. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what the Word says here. So look to Jesus. Rely upon Jesus here at the table. Let's remember Jesus. He wants us to remember Him. He says that. Luke 22 took the bread at the table, gave thanks, and He broke it, and He said to them, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. He wants us to remember him. He doesn't want us to forget him. That's key to relationship. That's really key. When we're apart from somebody, the fiance is apart from her loved one who's out fighting the war somewhere. She doesn't want him to forget about her. and He doesn't want her to forget about him. There's this forgetting about each other that's, that's no good for relationship. So, so we remember Jesus. Do we ever get tired of remembering a loved one? Do we ever get tired? People actually go to graveyards. Do you know that? And they actually they want to remember them. You know, they go to the graveyard, say, once a year. This happens with some folks. They want to remember their mother. They want to be there. Why? Why do they go there? There was a bad relationship with a father or mother. They're not going to go to the graveyard to remember. They don't want anything to do with that. But but when we remember somebody, we, we're loving them. Like, yeah, I want to remember Jesus. Remember his willingness to die. Like he set his face like a flint. Why? Because I want to die for Kevin. I want to die for Neil. I, I, I got to do this. I love Neil so much. I have got to complete the task. I'm going all the way. I'm going to love Neil to the very end. Sorry, brother, using your name, but that applies to anybody here. Let's remember Jesus' love, his passion to forgive sin. Remember him on the cross. Remember these details. We're going through this on Sunday evening. He saves people on the cross. Talk about evangelistic. You know, he's dying. He's saving somebody. Another thief. He's saving a thief right there. He's forgiving those. He's, 
He's praying for forgiveness for those who pounded the nails into his own hands. He's obeying his father. Father, this be your will. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I'll take this to the end, Father. I love you, and I, I want to obey you, and I know this is your love for these people, and I will go through to the very end for you, Father. He took the brunt of the wrath and the separation from God, and the darkness of soul and the torment and the agony. took that for you and for me. Anybody tired of this? Anybody getting tired of this? I'm not. I'm not tired of this. I'm like, yeah, I love Jesus. He loved me. Let's remember this. That's what we do at the table, brothers and sisters. And then finally, let's rejoice in him. Let's rejoice in what he accomplished. Put yourself there at the cross. Put yourself at the open tomb. Put yourself at the ascension. Put yourself in the realms of heaven and view him at the right hand of the Father. And ask yourself, is he worthy of my rejoicing? Has he proven himself the victor over Satan, over death? Is he worthy of rejoicing? Is he, is he worthy of celebrating? Is he your star? I mean, you people love stars. You know, movie star, my favorite movie star, who pretends that they redeem and rescue people who are kidnapped. They only pretend, but they're so cool. I'm telling you, Jesus did it. He really did it. He redeemed us from Satan. That's huge. He's worthy of your rejoicing. He's truly Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the greatest victor in all of human history. Let's remember Jesus. Let's rejoice in him. And as you reach for the plate to take the cup and the bread, you're reaching out to him. You're confessing your need for him. You're taking hold of him. And you're saying, Jesus, you're mine. You're mine. That's the relationship that's cultivated here at the table today. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we reach out to you this morning. We reach out to Jesus. Please reach out to us too. Turn your face towards us. We pray your spirit to enable us, Father. Oh, we remember Jesus. We rejoice in him. We, we do celebrate this table. But Father, the relationship, strengthen it. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen our love for you. Oh, we would love you more. That's the key thing. Now, as we're at the table, increase our love and our knowledge of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.